Hello, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, uh, our series on the movies nominated for Best Picture in 1975. 75 movies, 76 ceremony, distinction I'm already sick of making. And today we're talking about Nashville, Robert Altman's sprawling epic about the city of Nashville and its inhabitants and the country music scene therein. Ken, when did you first see Nashville? About two, about a week ago. Oh, so 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 that was recent. This okay. This was one of those few. Yeah, this is one of those few films that we've been discussing lately that uh, I had not yet gotten to. So yeah, I'm thrilled that I'm thrilled though that we got to it because boy, am I excited to talk about it. Good, good. Do you do you have much relationship with the Altman movies besides this one? I do I quite. I do quite a bit. Uh, watch Altman movies. My favorites are The Player and Gosford Park. Those were the two I first got introduced to, but. Uh, you throw in uh, shortcuts and mash, and even uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which I'm not—I don't which love. We watched. We we, we watched, we watched and COVID, discussed it. Over, I don't yeah. love that movie, but it grows on me. I've seen that one about three times now, and I've liked—I've hmm. liked asp- I've liked liked it better and better each time I've watched it. TJ, when did you first see Nashville? If you can remember, do you know? Well, I actually haven't seen this one yet, which is why I was excited to hear what you guys had to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the first time I saw it, I was probably 22. It's been about 10 years. Okay. Um, I watched it in undergrad in a phase that I went through where uh, the films that I was really into and the films that I was trying to write as a uh, failed screenwriter were these sort of like um, hyperlinked movies. These mm. not not really focused, it, it, sprawling, right? Like one yeah. setting, maybe... Uh, one distinct part of time, a lot of characters that just kind of like come in and out sort of thing. Um, I think I probably came to Altman by way of, I had a phase where I was obsessed with Paul Thomas Anderson and he, I was just going to bring him up. Yes. Yeah. He really liked Altman. Um, and a lot of his work in the late nineties, it was a lot to Altman. Um, Mm -hmm. so I watched, I watched a lot of Altman and Altman died in, was it? Oh, nine, four, oh, nine, I think. Um, and it, it was it was like two weeks before the St. Louis International Film Festival, where Paul Schrader was mm. there with his film Adam Resurrected, and I, I was really liking Altman at the time. And Schrader was talking about the movie. Altman was barely cold, and Paul Schrader was just shitting on him about how, <laughs> like, none of none of nah, none of his characters are very deep, and Bob uh, yeah. Altman yeah. he's done a very very shallow. Yeah, it was, it was Paul Schrader always sounds like he's out of breath and needs to clear his throat. That's how Paul Schrader talks and at all times. Ha- having seen more Paul Schrader films and more Altman films now, I understand like the distinction there. But still, it was a little weird to be dancing on his grave that early. Do, um, I, I will just clarify just a moment. He died in uh, 2006. Okay. And it okay. was right about the same time A Prairie Home Companion was released. There you go. Okay. And I, I do vaguely remember him having just died because... As a weird sixteen-year-old, this is what I went to see on my sixteenth birthday. Is a oh. Curry, Robert Altman's last movie. Ken, sixteen going on sixty-five. Uh, <laughs> I was and- the youngest person in the theater to see The Queen. By the way, that's that's right. I- that's yes, what we're talking I'm about. I'm not at all surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that you were the okay. And and on Prairie Home Companion, they actually had uh, P.T. Anderson as like a standby director because they didn't think. Well, they thought there was a chance Bob Altman did not make it through the film. Um, real quickly, uh, his movies I've seen, I've seen MASH, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Long Goodbye, Nashville. Mm. Um, oh, I've I, forget seen... about, I forgot about The Long Goodbye. Um, Secret Honor, Rest in Peace, Philip Baker Hall. Um, mm. I, uh... Not good? Well, he's good in it, playing Richard Nixon. but yeah, he's it's, always good. Yeah. It's, it's kind of brutal. Um, okay. I've seen The Player, I've seen Shortcuts, I've seen Gosford Park, and then A Prairie Home Companion. Okay. I think I think maybe two or three years ago, I hadn't seen any Robert Altman movies. And now I've seen, I saw I saw this for the first time, I think a couple years ago, mm-hmm. maybe the start of COVID-ish. Uh-huh. Um, I had the I had the Criterion Blu-ray for many years, but it's one of those things where like I bought it during a Criterion sale and it just sat on my shelf for, for years. Mm-hmm. And I still have plenty of Criterion DVDs and Blu-rays that I have not yet watched despite owning them for, for a long time. But this was this was one of those. And I finally watched it, you know, a couple years ago. And then we watched, the three of us watched McCabe and Mrs. Miller as part of a little covid film club we were doing over zoom um which that was pretty good uh like me some warren Beatty, and um i saw the long goodbye fairly recently too that movie rules 
uh, Elliot Gould. I also really just good. saw that recently. This is yeah, yeah that was a recent uh, watch for me as well. Uh, I read it. I read the Raymond Ch- Raymond Chandler. Is that who wrote that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I read that like maybe three or four years ago and uh, forgot all of it because you know the details don't really stick with you. But like, yeah, Elliot Gould. And you got Elliot Gould, and okay, right before that you got McCabe and Mrs. Miller. So of course, uh, you've got Gould and Christie making an appearance mm-hmm. here in this film. So we finally get to Nashville. By. Yeah, and Altman's yeah. doing his thing. We're just bringing friends in to kind of hang out and party with him. Yeah, but but okay. So so Nashville is like this sprawling epic with twenty four characters, and uh, TJ evoked Paul Thomas Anderson, who you know, if you watch Boogie Nights and Magnolia, the two movies from ninety seven and, and ninety nine, like they clearly owe a lot to like this style. And like my understanding is that like this is kind of like this is considered Altman's magnum opus because it's like the distillation of like him having multiple characters overlapping stories and I, I get that but i'm not sure i'm not sure i get this movie i guess do you guys think you get this movie <laughs> uh, can i jump I get... in with a couple other things real quick before sure. answering that uh i also i've seen T- tanner 88 uh which is a tv series okay. he did where they like invented a presidential candidate and like aired the campaigning process along with like while the election was going on and michael murphy was uh played tanner in it who's in this film as who the fuck knows what his name is, but the guy that's trying to get people to play music at the... He's the campaign oh. manager for the third party. Triplet. Yeah. Triplet. Triplet. John yeah. Triplet. Who's yeah. also in Magnolia, by the way. He's he's the the ex- executor of the will in Magnolia. He and is. so uh, is Julie Hen- Henry yeah. Gibson is the sassy gay Henry guy Gibson at the bar with. In yeah. Magnolia, yes. Um, and uh, the, the other thing with Altman real quick was uh, our old film teacher, Mark Cummings, used to say that Altman was like just barely didn't make his curriculum and he felt bad that like he should have worked a Robert Altman film into his film courses which I thought was an interesting thing because having taught film myself like I don't know which one you would pick to teach to high school kids because they're I think they'd be pretty tough sells but just having that reputation um, from him early on but also then that Altman got an honorary Oscar right before he died because he was considered like the greatest living director at the time that didn't have an Oscar, you know, um, he, he had quite a reputation. So that, that's an interesting question though. What, f- which one of his films do you introduce to people, not just high schoolers, but generally introduce. And I, I wonder, this is probably the most acclaimed one. Well, I don't know if this is the one, the film teacher at Viani shows mash and they hate it. The I, kids hate it. <laughs> I don't know that mash is the one I'd introduce. I think I might try the player. If I were if I were having to choose what what Altman film to introduce to people, I'd start with that. Nashville, yes, is probably his his. It's probably as you mentioned earlier, his magnum opus. It's probably his biggest, uh, most celebrated film. Um, he mm-hmm. got a little bit of he got a little bit of praise there at the end of his career with Gosford Park coming around and getting an yeah. Os- getting nominated Did that for win Oscars. A screenplay. Uh, that won, won, won a screenplay award, I think, didn't it? Either way, this this one is definitely a deeper. It's a deeper cut of a movie. It's not. It, it, there's there's so much going on at the same time. It's not obvious that there's what it is that's going on. I mean, it's it's trying to say so much without actually putting together a seamless plot or story whatsoever. It's just following all of these characters. Uh, for the record, Gossard Park won Best Central Screenplay for Julian Fellows, and there you that go. was it. Uh, can I do some quick background on Nashville, and we can talk about the the meat of it, if that's cool? Sure. Mm-hmm. Joan Tewksbury? Tuke- Anyone know how to pronounce that? Joan Tewksbury. Joan Tewksbury, who uh, was a collaborative Altman. Uh, I know that she worked in some capacity on McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and worked on his movie right before this, whose name escapes me. But um, she apparently went to Nashville in the fall of 73, and just, like, hung out for a while, talked to a lot of people, and, like, kept a diary of her escapades. And that diary kind of became, like, the basis of the screenplay. Um, at least, like, what was written down. Because this, like, a lot of Baldwin movies was a lot of uh, improvisation. Like, I watched a little bit of the um, director commentary uh, from Altman on the Criterion Blu-ray. And, like, he kind of indicates that, like, sometimes they just kind of showed up to – showed up. Like, first of all, there's no sets. It was all shot on location. And, like, sometimes they would just show up at a location and be like, okay, this looks good. And they would figure out how to light it and then just kind of, like, go. And, like, everybody was mic'd, too. 
I also watched a little bit of that commentary. Can I just this is this is a shout out to anybody making a film. Please record your commentary when you're right after you're making the film or shortly thereafter because he just got that in under the wire. My understanding is he recorded that docu- that commentary for this film for the Criterion edition like within within days or weeks of his death. Like it was he, he really got it under the wire to be able to talk about Good this job, movie. Bob. Yeah, so so you know, Joan Tewksbury wrote the screenplay, but there was a lot of improvisation. Um, and as we kind of covered, it's, it's 24 main characters with speaking roles. Or, you know, Jeff Goldman doesn't really speak, but he's a main character. He's listed as a main character. Um, 24 main characters followed over the course of five days in the country music scene in Nashville with the backdrop of the approaching 1976 election. And we keep returning to this van, like a campaign van that has like speakers just driving around Nashville, just espousing the candidate, the candidacy uh, positions of this re- reform it's replacement the replacement party, candidate. party. Yes, the replacement party candidate. Uh, what's the what's the character's name? Hal Philip Walker. Hal Philip Walker. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the background of everything. And then the movie culminates with a concert that is a political rally for this presidential third party candidate and. Uh, Tragedy ensues at said political rally. Um, they shot it in Nashville in 1974. Again, entirely on location. There's no sets built. Again, in the director commentary, he's talking about the scene where the guy who carries like the mandolin case around with the glasses, who looks kind of like a young Stephen King, uh, rents a room from uh, Shelley Duvall's uncle or whatever. Again, that's just like a house they found. They're like, okay, that looks good. And they just, you know, set up the lights and went. And that's kind of how they shot a lot of this. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress twice for Ronnie Blakely and for Lily Tomlin, and for Best Original Song for uh, I'm Easy by, is it David Carradine or Keith, Keith Carradine? Carradine. And, and he won. Keith Carradine's did I'm Easy. Yes. And it, yeah, it's it's kind of a remarkable little factoid from Oscar history. Beef. You know what? You know, this is remarkable that I didn't know is that this is this has the record holder for most Golden Globe nominations. Do you know that? 11 nominations at the Golden Globes. You know why? four Best Supporting Actress nominations for Nashville. Four. They also had a category of, like, Best Newcomer or something like that they don't have yes, anymore. Yes, they did have but, Best Newcomer, which yeah. they no longer have. But real quick, Best Supporting Actress. First of all, there were six nominees, not five, but four of the six were Nashville. None of them won, by the way. But you had Ronnie Blakely, Geraldine Chaplin, Barbara Harris, and Lily Tomlin, all nominated for Best Supporting Actress Golden Globes. And they lost to Brenda Vaccaro for Jacqueline Susan's Once Is Not Enough. I've never heard of that, but... Never seen it, Tough beat, but I'm familiar with the yep. the performance and the win. As far as the song goes, um, it's better than a lot of the songs that get nominated and win. It's Keith Carradine is a better songwriter than Diane Warren, I would say. That I was gonna, just really? the fact just the fact that it's called "I'm Easy" and not "Stand Up," "Lift My Voice," "Be There," "Walk Together," hey, some bullshit like that. Some know? of her most recent, some of Diane Warren's most recent Oscar nominations are yeah, like that. But she also wrote, you know, oh, it's not just her good ones. Look every year, <laughs> and they're all called like with one voice or. Well, like, this is this is a different can of worms, but like. There are some movie podcasts that I like that advocate eliminating this category entirely from the Oscars, especially because most of the best original song winners are just like shit they wrote for the ending credits. It's not really integrated in the movie at all. And this one should get credit for like actually being performed, written and performed in the movie by a character in the movie. So I give this one a pass. This is a good win. This whole I guess. this whole film, not granted, not all of the not all of the songs are as good as I'm Easy, but the entire soundtrack is is brilliant. Taken together, yes. I love that all of the actors participated in writing whatever music they got to sing. First of all, everyone who's actually singing is actually singing. And they, they wrote most of their songs, right? Like the actors themselves? Even if they had help. Robert Baskin was, I believe, the the uh, composer um, and lyricist who was brought in to kind of help. Um, and I think he wrote some – he may have written some of the songs himself. But he worked with, with all of the actors. Um, but yeah, the actors were given basically carte blanche to <laughs> – put together a song and Keith Carradine. I mean, it was a great song, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good song and kind of, uh, catapulted him into a brief music career hereafter. Like he actually went on to record and release at least one album, I think in the late seventies or something. This, the, the soundtrack for this film, uh, is impressive. Just starting the film alone with Henry Gibson's 200 years. Yeah is yes brilliant it's i love that yes absolutely it's it's a really good opening yes yes like uh, so 
I kind of alluded earlier, I'm not really sure to make this movie, but, like, that opening, like, couple of scenes, I'm, like, really on its wavelength. I'm, like, I get what it's doing. It's doing some interesting stuff. And, like, it's, you know, that, that first song from Henry Gibson is, like, implicitly tying the music scene to politics. Yes. Which is kind of the undercurrent of everything culminating in the, in the final scene the, he it's a commentary on a lot of things it is definitely a political yeah. film it's not yes very much it so. maybe not just talking about the the actual politics of america although it certainly is um but social politics industry politics like it is a political film on on every level when joan tewksbury was in nashville doing her you know going around and writing in her diary that would become the base of the screenplay watergate had not yet happened but by the time they were filming it I think they were filming it as, like, he hadn't resigned yet, but he was about to as they were filming it. it and then, obviously, when the movie came out, Watergate had happened. Actually, um, one of the one of the little factoids from production, uh, my understanding, and I, I saw this in a couple of sources, from a couple of sources, the day they filmed at the Grand Ole Opry, um, the Henry Gibson, That's right. yeah. the Henry Gibson performance, yeah. um, along with um, uh, Karen Black, I think, is performing in that scene. Um, that was the day Nixon resigned in 1974. Mm-hmm. So they're filming in the summer of 74. Which, and, you know, uh, you know, 70s were tumultuous, late 60s were tumultuous. He had a Watergate, he had the Vietnam War winding down and everything. But, like, the movie, particularly that opening song, is kind of, like, <sighs> sticking to patriotism in spite of the shitty things happening in the country. It's like almost like a defined patriotism. It's also cynical because the song is also... It's not aware of it. Like Henry Gibson is singing it genuinely. It, he's as a not guy. self-conscious. He's about being it. Yeah, patriotic, yeah. but it is uh-huh. incredibly, incredibly cynical because the song. If it you is. actually listen to it, the song is extremely. Cynical, it's making yes. fun of well, anybody who's that patriotic and gung ho about the U.S. The lyrics are like, you know, yeah, uh, we went to war and now our kids are at war, but like that's okay. And he's and the the chorus is, we must be doing something right. Look at the song. To the, last two hundred. This years. is seventy five, so we're still dealing with vietnam like this is the vietnam right. has been going on now for all of the 70s and the, there's the line i pray my sons won't go to war but if they must they must i share my yeah. con- our country's motto and in god i place my trust and he's so sickly genuine about it but it's so brilliant because it works even today even in 2022 as we're recording this there's been a lot of supreme court cases come out recently that I don't really want to get into, but like, there's a lot of uh, uh, faith in the founding fathers, you know, and uh, deference to that. And Henry Gibson's refrain of "We, we must be doing something right to last 200 years" is is literally saying like we're old, therefore we should be respectable. And like 200 years is not very old at all no. for a country no, like, at all. It's, it's a baby country. Arguably, yeah. <laughs> arguably, watching this movie, you realize we've lasted 200 years, probably in spite of ourselves. When he said we must be doing something right to last 200 years, I'm reminded of the Noah Cross line from Chinatown, and I'm going to bastardize it, but he says that uh, buildings and whores get respectable if they get old enough, <laughs> or whatever. Well, TJ, what do you think of the opening scene? Yeah, a lot of what you guys have said. I mean, don't. Uh, I think that <laughs> this gets retor- recorded by Toby Keith. It would be a hit now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you were you were off Mike, ironically singing the "Proud to Be American" by Lee Greenwood. It's basically the same damn song. Yes, um, yes. And the the other thing that's kind of encoded in there is another similar saying you'll hear anytime there's sort of criticisms of U.S. policy, which is you know, people say, well, then how come so many people want to immigrate here? You know, so falling back on these kind of bromides that are just ways of saying like, yeah, but it's also not the worst. Therefore, I get to ignore all of these valid criticisms that you're making, you know, um, and yeah, I just think it it sets the tone really nicely of the movie. Um, the way in which there's a sense of like covering one's ears and going la 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 to ignore the rough social reality right in front of you and instead to fall back upon uh, really treasured and comfortable nostalgic myths about the country that feel a whole lot better and allow you to move on very quickly. Uh, and I'm kind of talking about the end already. The other thing, well, first of all, a couple things. First of all, Henry Gibson is like bitching about the piano player. Frog. Uh, I don't know. What to, <laughs> frog. I don't know what to make of that, but I thought that was, that was interesting. The fact that like it kind of like it makes his singing a little more mis- disingenuous, I guess. That he's like this prissy. Um, oh, you know, he's a self, self-important 
little yeah little exactly thing. he's just it kind of undercuts the message of the song i think a little bit and then the other thing happening is like next door in like the same like recording building there's like a gospel thing happening and lily tomlin is singing with um an entire entire choir of african-american people in this gospel choir this character opal played by charlie chaplin's daughter geraldine chaplin is a Reporter from the, or she says she's a reporter she's, from the BBC. Yes. We, we never really confirmed that. Nope. Um, she maybe just be some nut with a microphone. We don't. We're not really sure. But uh, the way that she talks about like the the mostly black choir is like really <laughs> weird. <laughs> and um, I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's uh, it made me tug at my shirt collar. <laughs> she she yes, it is it is alarming. She suggests or makes she alludes to like the symbolism. Of the naked, frenzied bodies of the darkest of Africa. And it's, it is just one of the most shocking things I've ever heard to start out a movie. And it's not, let's be clear, Altman's not being serious. He is mocking this type of... I think he's mocking yeah. her. Oh, he's yes, definitely. Yeah. She, Opal, Opal represents, um, we can get into this a little later, but I mean, she's supposed to represent, I guess, the media and or the public. She's either she either is a BBC reporter as she alleges, or she's just a a crazy fan who's weaseled her way into all of these events throughout the film. She's, and Keith Carradine's bed. Yes, yes. Well, he's, she's not the only one. Let's be honest in that yeah, in the film. Yeah, yeah. The shock value is it, it it's unsettling in twenty twenty two. I do wonder how that lands in nineteen seventy five. I don't know about that, but here's what I think is the key of what's going on. There is. Um... At the very beginning of the film, especially hearing it from somebody with that accent, it's a reminder exactly. of... An outsider. Well, but particularly a reminder of the colonial past of the United States. Here you have this British person speaking about basically the um, quote-unquote savageness or the non-Americanness of these people of color, right? So that's part of what's going on there is juxtaposed to that first scene with Henry Gibson singing this... Um, Pride, this praise whatever. the tradition of the Pride. United States. Exactly, yes. right? Yeah. The thing that comes immediately after that is then hearing this... Intercut with even. Yeah, is hearing this British person um, echoing the sentiments of colonial past as a way of not actually seeing the very American music tradition that's going on in front of her. So those two mm-hmm. things are being cut back and forth as if to say one well country music that's american and patriotic but this gospel thing oh listen you can still hear the drums of africa right, right. so it's it's yeah. ways in which um you know basically the the white artistic artistic elite is delegitimizing the americanness of um anyone that doesn't fall within a particular artistic mode or a particular way of of presenting as traditionally american if that makes sense mm-hmm. which is also interesting given at the time i mean we we all think of nashville today as, as music city i mean it's the home of country music but even in the 70s country music stars the big ones still had to go to the coasts in order to record and really get the the money and the the, the publicity and everything um if anything nashville being one of one of the capitals along with atlanta let's say of the south the south um gospel music is just at home if not more so than country music at this point and so there is a bit of irony and i i get what you're saying there's a tremendous bit of irony in the fact that how how opal seems to be immediately defining one as american and the other as kind of a uh, somehow less american or exoticized yes uh-huh. Yeah. Even though in Nashville at this time, I mean, country music, the country music scene is still building. Gospel music has been around for much of the South's existence. It's been developed over a long period of time, as has country music, certainly. Um, but country music seems to be at this time trying to take a, a dominant hold on Nashville. Yeah. So I think that sequence ultimately presents kind of like two different Americas going on within the same recording studio, basically, but also mm-hmm. um, through music, it's politics and it's religion. I think so, so the opening image, I think, is the the van co- coming out of a garage, the uh, Walker van with the speakers on it. And then the then we go to the recording studio with Henry Gibson and the gospel singers. 
And then I think from there we go to uh, the airport where is it Barbara Barbara Jean is that her name Barbara Ronnie Jean Blakely yeah she's Barbara Jean yeah she arrives in Nashville to a uh, crowd of supporters and you know a, a high school drumline for some reason um, and she had she's coming out of the hospital right she had recently been like a, a in like a burn unit a house fire yeah house fire and uh, supposedly Scott Glenn's character's mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, cla- yes. <laughs> pulled her out and saved her life. Right, he claims. I guess we can already talk about the ending if we like. But like the fact that like Ryan Blakely, Ryan Blakely's character Barbara Jean here, she enters the movie having just recovered from like a brush with death potentially, and she's clearly still very fragile because in this first scene we have of her, she collapses and then spends a good portion of the movie in the hospital recovering. And when she finally does perform. Again, she's clearly, like, a little unwell. Yes. And her, her husband-slash-manager, like, pulls her off stage because she's, like, rambling kind of incoherently. The riverboat scene is genuinely one of the more uncomfortable I've ever watched. You're just... Yeah. Yeah. You're unsettled by it. She So she enters the movie having just had, like, a brush with death, and she's clearly still unwell and shaky, and then spends the movie recovering, and then performs and is still unwell... And then the movie ends with her assassination during concert on stage. Is there anything to like be read into there about like how you know what do you, what do you make of that? I, personally, I see it. she's there's a certain I guess symbolism there about how she represents I guess a certain innocence or yeah. a bygone America yeah. that's dying yeah or being allowed to yeah. die or killed. That's that's kind of what I'm getting. She's at. also that's the only singer yeah. with any talent in the movie. That's Henry well, Gibson erasure that I will not hear. I was going to say, you know, I think Henry Gibson's fine, but I think Barbara <laughs> no. Harris at the end is okay. But you're, she's, you're, you're right. Ronnie Blakely right, is the only TJ. legitimate, she's the only legitimate voice. I mean, yeah, the others, some to, to varying degrees, the others have okay voices, okay singing voices. Keith Carradine is obviously very good at singing his song. But uh, as trying to buy any of these people's actual country music stars, Blakely's the closest we get. Ironically, she doesn't really sing that much in the movie. No, like two scenes. Yeah, there's basically not much of her actually performing, um, and she keeps getting she keeps interrupting herself. But what you were saying though is like is kind of what I'm getting at is like I kind of think that she represents some kind of like I- ideal that we're holding on to, but like is barely limping along in 1975 and then just dies at the at the end of the movie. Yeah, you know? we we put it on a pedestal, but in the end we're uh-huh. actually we're actually also the cause of its destruction. But it was it was already on its way out. Yep. Yeah. And it, we catch it when it collapses in our arms, and we tend to it, and we pull it off stage when it starts to <laughs> ramble on. But um, It's also key where this happens, um, at the Parthenon, which is mm-hmm. an actual place in Nashville, yep. um, but it's like a replica of the center of Athens, which is the birthplace of Greek democracy. A replica of the origins of Western civilization, Yeah, but a and, cheap copy. And it's a political assassination but it's uh, the first and second time i watched this i was like why are they shooting her and not that i'm advocating any sort of political violence but you would think they would shoot the political candidate right um who's like about to go on stage whom we never see why her because she's also not explicitly political she's decidedly apolitical at least by her husband manager's efforts and he, then, he only lets her perform at he only lets her perform at this rally because she embarrassed herself on stage the day before. Right, right. You know, uh, he he want, he did not want her involved in politics. Sorry, go ahead. And so I I think we're supposed to ask why shoot her? She seems like the kind of the least offensive of the characters. Um, and then it occurred to me, you know, four years, nearly four years later, someone shot John Lennon. You know, and there's a lot of assault going on now to people on stage right like why why are we taking it out on these people and i think there's a sense that we've kind of been talking about that they are uh visible signs and visible vessels into which people place ideologies of some sort of cultural war right Hmm. so we don't exactly know why this guy kills her but his reason um just like any sort of like larger scale kind of crazy assassination is something that has to do with people seeing them as a symbol that is a symbol that they might not 
the, the victim themselves does don't necessarily take on. I, I think then this this film and the tragic ending of it is warning us against the proliferation of myths and empty, easy, undecided symbols because they become violent. And not only do they become violent, but then immediately after that, um, somebody starts singing, somebody starts singing, somebody starts singing, and they sing, it don't worry me, right? And we're watching this too after another series of massacres in the United States where we go thoughts and prayers, and then as a country, it don't worry me. What does Henry Gibson say as soon as Barbara Jean gets shot on stage? Do you remember? He tells people to start singing, right? Well, before that, he says, first of all, he's shot too. Yes, he's, he's shot in shot the, arm. the arm. So he's bleeding and like trying to get people to tend to Barbara Jean. And he looks to be like somewhat in shock. But he says to the crowd, before he says start singing, he says, this isn't Dallas, this is Nashville. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's says, right. This isn't Dallas, this is Nashville. Which, which is... is horse shit because he's so involved in the politicization of it so I, what he's trying to do there is basically like this isn't going to be the kennedy assassination we're nashville people like this is kind of the cultural bedrock of the country that's why he says to start singing right you know? but he is at the same time behind the scenes undoing and manipulating the very mechanisms that he thinks make nashville this sort of pure emblem of just american folk yeah um this is going to be a bunch of gumbo that's not really thought out but like what you were talking about the the symbols and the celebrity like there's this movie so much about celebrity yes. and like the intersection of celebrity and politics and like you know when when um elliot gould walks into the movie for a scene or two and just like is introduced you know and ned Beatty doesn't realize he's famous and like is embarrassed that he met a famous guy and didn't realize he's famous like it, it, henry gibson's character is such a uh, a clout chaser and wants to surround himself with fame. same thing when he meets Julie Christie. Welcome to Nashville and, um, and my lovely home. Yeah. And like, and, and the fact that they want to create this political rally and get all these famous people to sing at it. Like, again, it's this intersection of celebrity and politic. And even at one point, that lawyer character, what's his name? Triplet. Triplet. Tells Henry Gibson that he should run for governor. Right? Didn't he say that at some point? Mm-hmm. I don't have a point to this. I'm just saying it kind of goes with what uh, TJ was saying about um, what that assassination ultimately means at the end of the movie. It's also a film not only – I hate to use the word mocking, but it is certainly certainly doing that among, of, of celebrities. I mean a lot of the characters in oh, yeah. the film are supposed – or not a lot, but a significant number of them are supposed to be famous. I mean we're talking yeah. about uh, Keith Carradine is kind of a Chris Christopherson type um, – Ronnie Blakely is supposed to be like either a uh, either a Loretta Lynn or a Tammy Wynette, something like that. I mean, we're talking big stars in the country music scene, and this film is kind of kind of eviscerating the personality of celebrity, and it's using country music to the point that the mainstream country music at the time did not receive this film very well. In fact, they they, they yeah, thought they it was insulting like it. them. Um, which it kind of is. Well, yeah, because they're they're all vapid, and the only person that has ideas in this is never actually seen. What's what's damning about this movie that ends up proving correct over the next forty something years is look at how much our successful politicians, and by successful, I mean the people that win races, are celebrities. Whether they used to host the Celebrity Apprentice, or whether it comes down to are they good on TV, are they good on Twitter. In a, in a country where the public is not intelligent enough to work through a public discourse of ideas, we end up placing it upon the, the burden of that upon being telegenic and being entertaining. This is, this is kind of going, taking a deeper dive into politics now, but the film is almost a – I wonder if there's a slight contradiction that Altman didn't intend to make because I agree with you and I agree that the film is suggesting that. But the film speaks rather speaks of, of Kennedy with care. Um, Hamilton's wife is very serious, very almost like this lingering level of distraught when she's talking about John Fitzgerald Kennedy and how how important he meant to her, how, how important he was to to the country, and how much he meant to her, despite the fact that she's from the South and they weren't supposed to be they weren't supposed to be Kennedy fans, according to uh, Opal. Who makes a, a side commentary, but in fact he did win quite a number at the South. I, t- I take your point about the 
contradiction there and the hypocrisy. And I think that's part of Altman's point. I don't think her sort of like bumbling, drunk Lady Pearl's little speech there is supposed to be taken like wholly seriously from the perspective of like what the film's trying to say, other than the earnestness with which she um, speaks it. But I think something else that just within the context of the film that needs to be understood there is the way in which um, that's also representing an element of cultural outsiderism. Um, she talks also about being Catholic and what that means in that particular place. And we, I think we lose this looking back, but like Kennedy is the first Catholic president and what that was um, in terms of like identity representation at the time and how significant that sort of thing was. Um, and, and Altman himself was Catholic, granted a, a lapsed one, but a graduate of Rockhurst, I'll have you know. Yeah. Jesuits. Woo woo. I see all this stuff that we're talking about, particularly the opening scene and the closing scene. Um, and I am trying to understand the movie in the context of when it came out. But um, even so, this is my second time seeing it. There's a lot going on in between that I'm not sure I really grasp what it's doing. And maybe I do grasp what it's doing. It's just not doing that much. I don't want to be dismissive of it. But um, what about the stuff in between? You know, um, the BBC reporter. We kind of already mentioned that she's, I, I kind of called her like uh, an outsider, uh, kind of like an, a voyeur of America. And so therefore, she's kind of like the audience stand in of like what's happening in this city and in, in this country. And I remember when, when during the car crash scene, she, she says, this is America. It's, it's, she goes, it's America. Violence. It's America. And then she uses the phrase, it's America, it's America. Cars smashing into each other. All those mangled corpses. She, she like <laughs> loves that she's experiencing a car crash in America in person, and yeah. it's also in that she's stuck in they're stuck in traffic because of the car accident. There's also the moment Lily Tomlin is is sharing with her her background, and she has a, two kids, a boy and a girl, and and both were, were born deaf. And Opal's response is, "Oh my god, that's awful. Oh, it's so depressing." And Lily Tomlin's like, "Well, no, no, it's not. It's like no." And Opal won't hear of it. It's so terrible and awful yeah. that her children are deaf. And Lily Tomlin is trying to like, "No, no, it's not that bad." Well, so Lily Tomlin's married to Ned Beatty, and Ned Beatty cannot doesn't know sign language, so he can't communicate with his kids. And it's like, that's not really underlined much in the movie, but it's there. And like, that's a bummer. You know? it's a, learn of, it. I mean, it's your damn kids. Right. Yeah. Yes, he's, I know. He's incredibly, right. he's incredibly absent. I mean, Lily Tomlin, yes. first of all, among the many sub-stories sub in the film, you've got Keith Carradine basically longing or pining for the Lily Tomlin mm-hmm. character. Off of a, my understanding is they met once before. And he's now in. I I'm not really sure. I don't really get the history here. Well, if there is any, her husband is the attorney for the recording studio, right? Or the the, right. the and she records occasionally. So they met in the recording studio previously, um, and he was taken with her somehow because he keeps calling her suddenly when he gets back into Nashville, and even though he's also having an affair with one of his bandmates who are married to each other, correct? And he's also he also sleeps with Opal, the BBC reporter, who, despite. Her purported outsiderness, just reporting what she sees, is also clout chasing and celebrity chasing, yes. just like everybody else in this movie. Oh, yeah, she her, um, her scene with like Gould is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Running in yes. with the <laughs> trying to oh, I'm a reporter, and Gould seems so off put. I'll be honest, in that moment, you totally buy that Altman is improvising all of this because like Gould looks like he's not sure what the hell is going on at all. Also, the the moment where the uh, like. If Jesse Plemons were more attractive looking guy is oh, finally song. telling her the song yeah. and she's like, oh, my God, is that really cool? <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. But uh, yes. Yeah. Well, OK, I'm going to take a roundabout way to try to answer the question, even though I'm pretty sure I just interrupted Ken. Um, can fine. I do this? Um, Josh, this is going to sound like an insult to you, and I don't mean it that way. So. Gerger oh, wait, let me get ready. Let me, let me yeah. sit down. Are you ready? Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm ready to uh, go. We all know one of the things you really, really like and appreciate about a movie is traditional screenplay structure. That's completely correct. Okay. Yes. This movie... Of which this does not have much. Does not have that. In fact, no. uh, let me quote here. Um, it's time for the quoting. Uh, Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian wrote this about the film. And I don't particularly like him, but... I was just about to say, I'm, I'm surprised you're quoting... No, Peter Bradshaw catching a stray from TJ. I know, well, you know, uh, never mind. Um, okay, <laughs> uh, skipping some things. He says here, 
Dozens of stories and lives crisscross each other. Their intersections are brilliantly constructed by Altman, yet everything appears utterly natural and unforced. Could a modern screenplay seminar teach anything like this? Answer, no. no. Right? Um, I went to film school, and if you turned this... If you turn... It wasn't Notre Dame, but if you turned this (laughs) script in... um, they would have gone there's no inciting incident on page 15 you'd be noted to hell exactly right um and the other thing that i think is difficult in terms of getting the there there about this movie is somebody else that i actually think is kind of stupid and i don't like to quote roger ebert oh um hey hey, hey, what what is that where where's that coming from now you're just being mean yeah now it's hurting feelings He's the Jay Leno of movie critics. Oh, oh! So he's like one of the most is... successful comedians of all time of movie critics. Is that what you're saying? No, no. I, I, I take I take offense to that. Successful and has no talent. Yes, that's I what take, I'm saying. That is, that um, is so. Well, not let's geez, well, let's Leno not get off on a tangent now. Hey, I'm Roger Ebert. I got a lot of costs. Hey, yeah, uh, yeah. what is the story about? I wrote the film may be great because you can't really answer that question. That's Ebert. A little bit later on Ebert. This is gross. After I saw it, I felt more alive. I felt I understood more about people. I felt somehow wiser. It's that good a movie. What a beautiful sentiment. No. What a beautiful well, thing. But here's the, here's what he's really getting at, I think, in that review, is he can't really tell you what the movie's about or why it's good, but that it's something that is a little bit more impressionistic rather than formal or structural. Um, and I think that that might be... I'm not saying you don't get the movie. What I'm saying is if you feel like you don't connect with it, I think it's because those like formal structural markers aren't there. And the people that do like it talk about the the impression or the feeling that it gives them. Does Is that a fair point? This is a film. Yeah, I mean, it meanders for three hours. Let's be honest. If, if a film meanders for three hours, odds are it, it's not going to be very good. It's very difficult to make a film this that is this length and not have a, a set plot whatsoever. Just have it bouncing around, not only bouncing around, but you've got people talking over over each other incessantly. It, it, it's dialogue on dialogue with music in the background. The cuts are often kind of uh, just quick and random. You either enjoy that. It either it makes you, I don't know, feel connected and like you're kind of in on some kind of party or, or group uh, hang with Robert Altman and these people. Or you don't. You're lost. You're bored. I say this having yeah. watched it with with Brittany here at home. She by the end of the film was not all that wild about it. She was totally game to watch it with me. And at the end of the film, I was like, I I gotta be honest. I really really dug that movie. And she just looked at me and was like, Well, at least one of us. <laughs> oh, zing. Well, the the lack of you know screenwriting one on one stuff means it's there's it's harder to latch on to certain things. Yeah, I think. and yeah. that's why. I, that's why I like seeing that kind of stuff in movies. You don't have to I, defend I, yourself. I, I, My point is just like, if that's the type of thing one likes in a movie, which I think it is what you like, this mm-hmm. movie does not succeed on those terms. Well, just, you know, not to make myself sound like a simpleton, but this is true. Like, part of the reason that's helpful for me is it helps me realize what the movie is exactly mm-hmm. you know if i can say this is the inciting incident this is the breaking mm-hmm. to two this is the breaking to three like if you can talk about it in those terms that's then you know what the story is because you know yeah that's the arc you know and like but i don't think because this, this a, lacks those yeah this isn't really a film about story though it's a film about uh location time zeitgeist atmosphere impression Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, that's all true. Because, yeah. yeah, again, if you said, like, describe for me the plot of Nashville, a lady f- sings and faints, and there's a little bunch of other people, and then she gets shot. <laughs> like, that's kind of, I mean... Um, it's a uh, film of experience. And pe- people sleep with each other. And, yeah. Uh, um, one lady can't sing, so she becomes a stripper, basically, because oh she's a bad God. singer. Oh, Suleen. Su- poor Suleen. 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 Oh, Something else, though, Josh. Uh, I will come at you again. You should like this, because you know who does like this movie? Um, the Safties. Roger Ebert. Uh, and, yeah, of course they do. And obviously Richard Linklater, because Dazed and Confused is yes. basically a high school so, remake of Nashville. Real quick, uh, we mentioned that the everybody's mic'd up and there's so much overlapping dialogue, which is why the Safties love this, because the Safties, their bread and butter's overlapping chaotic dialogue. Um, I believe this movie was like a, innovative in its sound design and the fact that everyone's mic'd and they like had to... Like they were the Two first movie to have like, sound, like so many sound, sound boards, like yeah. a, like a dozen sound channels. The system like for this, yeah, 
They they literally built a new right. system to make this movie because of what what Altman wanted to do. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't possible until right. they made the movie. Right. Which aesthetically is a representation of democracy. Everybody gets a voice and nothing gets done, right? <laughs> like... And chaos. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm not surprised the softies of it because uh, fun fact about Uncut Gems, and maybe, maybe I've shared this with you before, but I'll share it on mic. Um, when a movie's in post-production, it's extremely common to have uh, ADR, like extra dialogue, recorded after the fact, uh, ADR dialogue. And typically for a movie in post-production, like they'll maybe be four or five pages of ADR dialogue to record after the fact and edit it in. Uh, on Uncut Gems, there are 62 pages of ADR dialogue for post-production. And there are characters in Uncut Gems who do not exist on screen, but only exist in ADR voices, as if there's someone like just off camera speaking to someone else in the room, but they're not actually there. They're just a voice. Um, yeah, fun fact. A- Uncut Gems. Automated so, yeah. dialogue replacement. Thank you. ADR. I didn't know what it was offhand. So oh, really? That. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't. Fun fact. Um, what else? Oh, uh, L.A. Joan, the Shelley Duvall character, who I really don't oh, like. Man, yeah, <laughs> um, this is a rough... I don't know who could. Uh, tough look for Shelley Duvall. Um, I think she kind of speaks to the uh, celebrity chasing um, that we've been talking about. Also, uh, she's... It's, it's kind of a criticism of the youth at the time. I mean, if he's, yeah. if, if Altman, Altman's not letting anybody get away from his, his sights... Um, th- this is a film that is kind of ripping apart anyone and everyone using the music industry and using Nashville just as the set setting and, and the particular, uh, particular, uh, target for this exact movie, but it's all youth. I mean, she comes in and she's supposed to be visiting with her uncle and her dying aunt and mm-hmm. she doesn't see her aunt i think at all right if my she i don't think nope. she visits her aunt once even when she's at the hospital at one point she doesn't actually visit her aunt and you've got keenan Wynn playing her uncle he's a that's a such a heartbreaking character and storyline yeah, really because his yeah. wife does die in the film and you've got scott glenn who's obsessed with the singer who there's that scene where he walks in just after Keenan Wynn's just found out in rather, rather curtly by the nurse. Like there's nobody hey, comforting him. Yeah. He, there's nobody comforting mm-hmm. him. He's just told kind of matter of factly that, Oh, Oh yeah. By the way, she died. Oh, she died. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier. And I don't know how, I don't know how he manages to keep himself together because Keenan Wynn bottles up so many emotions in that one scene without breaking down. He just looks like he's about to implode, and yeah. he just sticks with it the whole time. It's it's a utterly gut wrenching character and and sort sub story in the film. Um, but Shelley Duvall, it only makes you angrier at her throughout this film, who yeah. she's coupled with. Yeah, and yeah, she's just kind of a detestable little brat. She sucks. Uh, one thing about Keenan Lynn is uh, the first time I watched this, I didn't recognize him, but now I do from Dr. Strangelove. He has what is possibly my favorite line, Dr. Strangelove, which was, um, if you don't get the prison on the phone, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to have to answer the Coca-Cola company. Wow. <laughs> before he shoots the, I didn't know that was before him. He shoots the vending machine. That's him. Keenan uh, Wynn yeah. also, I, I, we texting with each other earlier this week, I watched The Great Race. Keenan Wynn plays Tony Curtis's like assistant best friend valet however you want to describe him in that film about ooh, 10 years before this one um so it's just funny i watched two keenan Wynn films within a few days and it underappreciated uh, character actor um yeah for sure yeah let's move away from from this though because i keep now i keep picturing shelly duvall in those stupid wigs she's wearing in every other scene and she, every single scene she has different hair she has a different wig in every scene she's just she's frighteningly she's ghost-like in those giant eyes it's just like a walking yes. nightmare well what else what else do you guys want to talk about like again i uh, tj kind of explained why i have trouble latching on certain things in this movie i think i get what it's doing i guess um i think it's good but maybe not my favorite kind of movie well i think i mean i, I think that's fair i mean we we sort of texted earlier about robert brasson and that I mean, I'm in a boat on that where I'm like, okay, like I, but eh, not for me, you know. I get it, pickpocket. I get it. Yeah. Insert shots. Cool. <laughs> actually, I, uh, I, I like pickpocket actually, but yeah, he is just really likes insert shots in that yeah. movie. 
I guess 75 minutes of a guy writing in his journal in a room by himself and then insert shots. That is <laughs> pickpocket. Um, and the basis of Paul Schrader's entire filmography, basically. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. I, I just tried to make that point as a way of being like, you were saying you don't think you get it or you don't know what it's doing or whatever. Like, I think you do. I just think that, you know. There's not, sure. there's not okay. as, it's not like, it's not a traditional structure. And so there isn't a traditional uh, point to get from the film. There's just a lot of yeah. ideas. And it's an experience watching all of these characters. It is, feel, definitely, for sure. To the, res- to, the, to the respect of all the actors, it feels, they feel lived in. Like, these feel like Absolutely. genuine people, genuine characters who are just kind of playing off and interacting with each other as you would in normal life. Granted, in this strange, very specific world of country music in Nashville. Well, I want to I push back just on one point, which is you said there's nothing really to get. I do think there's a point to the movie, which we hit on much, much earlier in the conversation about, um, you know, myth, nostalgia, American identity, um, moving on, the role music plays, the role politics play, like all of that. In I think there's particularly a point to it. Um, but I don't think it has the like kind of dominoes falling one event to another sort of thrust. What point? I'm curious. What specific point? Because I feel like this film is just going idea from idea to idea. And uh-huh. It's just it's a it's creating conversation. Some of the best films do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't think it's. Um, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not. I sure think it's. That... I think it's ambiguous in yes. the sense that like there there's there's a. Uh, uh, range of possible interpretations but those interpretations are all sort of uh complicated right in other words i think they all need to say something like this movie is very cynical (laughs) Um, but but i don't think it's like no 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 this is the one like thesis answer to the movie i i watched it with a friend of mine as well and he asked beforehand like oh what what is this is this a comedy and i said oh no well yeah, yeah no it's uh, Wikipedia. I, I love how Wikipedia categorizes movies, and they categorize this one as a sat- American satirical musical ensemble comedy drama film. Okay, great. Because satirical when, when musical we were, ensemble comedy drama of the film. many of that category. Uh, yeah, about halfway through it, he's like, "Oh no, this is a musical, but it is also a comedy." And then at the end, he's like, "No, this is a tragedy." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, um, it is all of those things." Like, I don't yeah. think. It's one of those films that's not easily categorized, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, it really works as this strange amalgamation of all of these different tones. And mm-hmm. even with even, so much within the film, like, we start with with straight... I mean, if you ignore the the driver, the van driving around, although I kind of chuckled and laughed at that when, I saw, when it, the movie started. But the start of the film is comedic. You get Gibson, you get Tomlin, and you get chaplain's opal um and even again the 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 van just aimlessly driving around nashville with just a speaker shouting out the messages and refrain from this third party candidate um there we 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 are we would be remiss not to mention uh the opening which does uh elaborate a little bit on the background of that third party candidate um hal philip walker uh, there's the the suggestion that what he he started his campaign after a speech at a college or something, where he asks questions like, "Does Christmas smell like oranges to you?" And that's what catapulted him onto the national stage. Like this ridiculous sense that even though he's like well like a third party candidate, he seems to have some ideas, but even he's a kooky nonsensical nut. Hooray for third-party candidates. <laughs> and then co- um, and then you balance that with a lot of tragic figures, a lot of tragic characters, along with the, the ridiculous. Anything else before we talk about this in the context of the Oscars? Uh, anything else you want to cover? We talked a lot about the movie without getting into like a lot of particulars, which I'm totally fine with. And I think if you went into the particulars, more things would come up. But I think we'd also be here another like two hours. And yeah, I, I, think we, we, I think we treated it respectfully and adequately an adequate discussion i believe so that's the that's the serious film people promise an mm-hmm. adequate discussion how does this stack up against modern or historical best picture nominees and i think i have a different answer than the two of you because as we talked about 
I'm not sure how I feel about this movie. I guess I like it, but... I'm going to continue to piss you off. What does that question mean? I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> you and I, the, the three of us combined have seen... Do you mean how does it compare to other, like... How does this compare to other things that have been out of the best well, picture that you've seen recently or in the 70s? Before we jump into Oscars specific, I, I'll just I'll just jump into a thought I had while watching it because... This is one of those early this is one of the earliest examples of that type of film where you're trying to stuff a bunch of celebrities, a bunch of characters and actors into a a movie and have a bunch of different substories going on that are somewhat loosely linked and it spawns later on not only films from Paul Thomas Anderson like Boogie Nights and Magnolia but you get like the Love Actuallys and all of the Gary Marshall films like, you know, uh, I don't even what Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, Valentine's New, Day, Year's Day, Day New Year's Day, Mother's Day. Yes. All of these, all of these, it becomes almost a self parody of, of this type of film. But Nashville really works. I, I think on that note, it definitely stands above anything that comes later. Um, or at the very least, you only see a couple of examples that really meet this level. Yeah, I guess I should also put in the context of like kind of what you're just alluding is that this is kind of the first version of something that I've seen since. And so um, as much as I love Boogie Nights and Magnolia, like I realize those wouldn't exist without this. So I should appreciate it for that reason. But like having seen the stuff downstream of it, I kind of lose the appreciation of this doing it first, I guess. TJ, does my question make more sense or no? Uh, Maybe I'm going to try to answer it, but just do it having done a scan of like films that were nominated in past years um i think it would be it's as good as the top one or two each given year i would say there were years i was looking through that i'm like this is better than every movie that was nominated and then there were other years that i'm like oh i'd put that like third i Hmm. I it doesn't seem like an outlier to me um i think it's a strong choice i agree this film this film actually surprised me with how much i liked it and and kind of my takeaway from the film being easily one of the best uh one of the best films out of to come out of the 70s and i'm not saying that just because it's maybe altman's most widely revered and i do appreciate altman no it's genuinely one of the best films of the 70s i've ever i i've seen i've watched particularly recently i've watched a lot of 70s films of late we've not only been watching the ones for this podcast we watched a few uh privately and yeah that's not that that's i think i think that says something if you know or familiar all with movies of the 70s nashville is i think one of the one of the crowning achievements of the decade well and Having watched these movies, these 75 movies, except we haven't done Cuckoo's Nest yet, but I've seen it many, many times. Looking at that year, four out of the five of these nominees are like intelligently, complicatedly about America and where America's at and America as an idea. And looking at a lot of the shit that's nominated nowadays, like so few movies are trying to actually say anything challenging or comprehensible or like that they don't really like take america seriously as an idea in any complex way so few so few of them do you i'd like to see more people yeah i'd like to you'd like to see more people try of course nashville i think works today i think it's not only is it is it just as good as the best films in any given year that we're seeing produced today uh it still works like the effect the impact of the film works if you're watching it you recognize the america in this movie it's not some bygone film from the 70s and oh that's a different era it's not like watching a scorsese film about new york in the 70s where the city takes on a character of its own nashville is representative of america and it's not like america has changed that significantly from what we see in the film what what would your answer be josh um I think that even if it doesn't like completely hang together for me for reasons that we've kind of already covered, I do really appreciate the commentary on the time in the country, um, the cynicism, but also like kind of the defiant hopefulness and pride in the face of cynicism. Um, and I think that's kind of still relevant now. I mean, it hasn't, it never stopped being relevant in the last 40 years. Um, 
where uh, there's a lot of reasons to be cynical about the state of the country, but also, you know, we press on anyway. Uh, we're recording this on 4th of July weekend, and we're uh, in the midst of some um, <laughs> reasons to not be proud of this country, but, you know, here we are anyway. Um, if, if if there was ever a 4th of July weekend to just play Henry Gibson's 200 Years out loud... <laughs> We must be doing something the, right. The, yeah. the best, the best yeah, thing is, we're, prob- we're probably doing something right. I don't the know. best thing. That's kind of the attitude. The irony of playing this, it's like some kind of 4th of July festival. How many people would love this song not getting the, the irony? Yes. Again, the, the chorus effectively boils down to like, shit, man, seems, seems pretty bad, but I guess we're probably doing something right. I don't know. We're still here, right? So, yeah, we're probably okay. I don't know. Um, there are a lot of bad movies in Anime for Best Picture, or like movies that I really care for in Anime for Best Picture, especially since we've upped it to 10. And if we keep doing so this, I would definitely put this, we'll get there. Yeah, we will. And I would put this ahead of a lot of those, but it probably would not be top three most years like this for TJ. Um, but I do think it, It, you know, the, another question I have on the outline is, does this deserve as Best Picture nomination? Like, yeah, yes, I do. I think so. What? Um, I'm not I'm not trying to be a dick. What does that you mean? You don't know what that means. Just, I know. You just well, naturally, it just, you just was this what, Was this one of the five best movies of 1975? I haven't seen enough movies well, of 1975 to say whether it was, is, or isn't. Because also the question is, like, what does it mean to deserve a Best Picture nomination? Does it mean being one of the five best movies of that year, in my opinion? Or is Best Picture also, is it like Time Magazine Person of the Year? Where, like, Hitler got it, you know? Do you know what I'm saying? I I'm not sure I see the comparison, no. <laughs> my my point is, like, uh, this is a really... Okay, fine. Some people argued that uh, Endgame should have gotten a Best Picture nomination because it made, like, $2 billion and dominated the cultural zeitgeist. The argument... Hold on, hold on! <laughs> the argument there was not about the artistic quality of the movie. It was, this was, like, the movie of the year, Okay. So if that's how you're defining what best picture is, that's a different conversation than like what's actually the best film of the year. And if that's that's the question there, they seldom actually nominate the five or ten best films of the year. They they nominate what a, a collection of people who work in the industry um, think is quality work, right? I think I think Josh's question though. <laughs> assumes that the three of us all agree that if we had our druthers, the best picture category should reflect the actual best films in any given year versus what you're describing is like film of the year is the equivalent to people's person of the year. It can be a bad, it can be a terrible film, but be the like cats could arguably have been film of the year when it was released. Mm -hmm. Everybody Mm -hmm. was talking about it despite a lot of people having not even seen it. Everyone wanted to talk about it being that terrible. This is something else. It's it's literally best picture. Let the record show that Ken was comparing the movie Cats to Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hitler it had won a twice. So, um, uh, God. So, is it, should I read this question? As was this conceivably in the top five films of 1975? Sure. Yes. I mean, knowing knowing <laughs> I, know, I mean, knowing what we know about the kinds of movies that are not for best picture and the quality therein, should this have been there? And I think in, yeah, it should in have been, retrospect, even I don't love it. If if we're if we're being uh, critical of the Academy's choices, like TJ was just just being a few minutes ago, in that sense, looking back on this year, there's some truly quality films, and Nashville is indicative of kind of a if you're a cinephile an ideal it's the kind of film that you would hope in any given year they would nominate um the actuality is is obviously quite different what we actually see in any given year nominated but nashville being nominated here is is a real i think point of pride for anybody who's a film fan and who appreciates the academy awards and who appreciates altman i think that's well said because despite my gripes, there's years where it's like, that's not my number one movie, but it was like good enough. Like Nomadland, for example, like wasn't my number one film of the year, but I consider that like a they got it right year because like that is a really, really good film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end. What do you think? Well, you didn't ask, would this be nominated today? <laughs> would this be nominated today, TJ? I think I say no. Oh, I think it would uh, because like everybody's in it. 
So like everyone and people worked with them. And I think even though it's, it is a rather complex movie, I think it plays as pretty, um, it's, it's politics are pretty liberal and, Mm -hmm. um, we know how much the Academy likes to reward things that think the way that like people in LA think. So yeah, they can pat themselves in the back and feel good about voting for a message movie. Yeah. Yeah. So even if they didn't get it, I think they could be like, yeah. I agree. I think uh, I think it should be nominated today. I think it'd be able to squeeze in, particularly given that we have 10 nominees in any given year now. Uh, yeah, I think Nashville fits in there. Neither Boogie Nights nor Magnolia were nominated for Best Picture. If I recall, I don't remember. I like those, I, I like those more than this. I, I don't recall off the top of my head about Boogie Nights, but if I recall, uh, there was a serious kind of push for Magnolia. Um, if Magnolia came out in a pretty crowded year, yeah, I think, and I think there was some push. Uh, there was, I believe, some push in that, for that film, including for Tom Cruise, like in particular. Um, well, he was nominated, uh, but I mean, yeah, because of because of his his role in the film, that film there was Cruise allowed there to be an undercurrent um, for the movie that almost, I think, pro- almost it probably just missed out. If there had been ten category ten films nominated that year, I think Magnolia probably gets in. Yeah, I think Mag- I think Nashville. I guess we get in if ten. There are ten categories in twenty twenty two, but I don't know. Again, like I said, like this is kind of like the first version of something that we've seen more of, so it's hard to put it into a like. It's hard to see this coming out in twenty twenty two and like how that would be received. It is. Um, it is interesting that this film played really well, apparently, on the coast. So New York and L A. at the time it was released, Nashville uh, did not play in the middle part of the country as well. In fact, a poll taken. Um, Oh, I don't remember who now. Um, there was a poll taken at one time uh, discussing the fact that, or reflecting the fact that people in New York thought this was one of the biggest hits of the year when it was released. Um, it was like the 27th or 26th highest grossing film of 1975. But if you'd asked anybody in New York or LA, like they all thought, well, Nashville was one of the highest grossing biggest movies of the year well the audience point of view character is a outsider to nashville observing nashville as it unfolds in front of her so like it is a bit of a voyeuristic like hey we're on the coast this is the middle this is what the middle america is like kind of thing so that that's not super surprising i guess also can i just say nashville is much different now the Nashville in yeah, 1975, <laughs> like the Nashville in the movie kind of sucks. The Nashville in like 2020 is pretty awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah I love Nashville. Yeah. I'm going to get some chicken later. Damn. Now I'm thinking about hot chicken. Oh. Yeah. Sounds good. No pickles though. I'm not a pickles guy. Nah, me neither. Um, I mean, should we end Should we end by talking about hot chicken? Anything else? Uh, speaking of chickens, chickens are birds. You know what else are birds? Cuckoos. <laughs> well done. That will be our. Yes, we will. We will be back. We will end. We will end our series on the films of 1975, 75 movie, 76 ceremony, next week or whenever we do it, with one for the cuckoo's nest. So, I hope you enjoyed the discussion of Nashville. Please subscribe or whatever. I don't really know. And then uh, come back again next week for one for the cuckoo's nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Please, please do subscribe. Even if you don't listen to us again, just please subscribe. Or whatever. We won't post much, so, you know, we won't blow up your feed, I guess. Anyway, thanks for listening. Come back again next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.